Well, welcome everybody. For those of you joining in at our Ashley Park campus, we're really excited and glad to have you here with us. And for those of you watching online, we're honored that you're joining in and hopefully we'll see you in person uh, real soon at one of our campuses. But, you know, today I want to start by talking about an observation that I've made uh, that I've seen to be true about most people over the years. In fact, I'm pretty confident now that this is pretty much universally true about all of us. I don't care who you are, you probably have an area of life that you're just not satisfied with. Something in your life that you would say, you know, I wish that were different or I wish that were something that uh, I could change. Maybe it's a relationship, could be your marriage, maybe it's your income, or maybe it's just something to do with your career. It could be anything, something to do with your health, maybe your physical health or your mental health, but we all have these areas, at least one area in our lives, where we say, you know, I wish that were different. I wish I could make it better. I want to see change. And for most people that I meet, well, most of us believe, well, I'm just probably one or two decisions away from seeing that thing get better or from seeing me being satisfied with my life. And we say things like that, right? We say things like this. You know, once I get through school or once I get this promotion, then I'll be able to make enough money, right? You ever heard that said? Or we've said things like this. If we could just get the kids out of diapers, then we can work on our marriage. And that usually turns into, well, when we get the kids out of high school, and then that turns into, if we could just get the kids out of the house, <laughs> then we can work on our marriage. Or we've said things like, well, when things settle down at work, you know, then I can just spend more time for me, work on me. Or if I could just find the right man, or if I could find the right woman, then I wouldn't be so lonely, and then I'd be happy. You ever notice how we're just always one decision or one accomplishment away from being happy? But the problem is, as soon as I get past that accomplishment or I get past the decision that I make to, to bring me that happiness, I find that, well, there's another decision that I need to make, and that one's going to lead me to happiness. And most of the time I look back on the last decision and I think, well, I don't think I made that one very well, and so I need to make a different decision. And so I make a different decision, and I get past that decision, and I wind up still dissatisfied, and we find ourselves in this cycle of making decisions, hoping they'll make us happy and lead us to where we want to be, and we get frustrated, and we get discouraged. But if you've been here with us for the past few weeks, you know that we've been learning something in this series. We've been learning together that it's not about your decisions. It's not about my decisions. That's not the problem. The problem is the beliefs that I have or the thoughts that I have that inform the decisions that I make. So we've been saying throughout the series, if you still keep thinking the same thoughts you've always thought, or if you still keep believing the beliefs you've always believed, nothing in your life is probably going to change. We all need to think better thoughts. A, a really wise follower of Christ uh, named Paul uh, put it this way. This is from your Bible. He says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And see, isn't that what everybody wants? I mean, whether you're a, a, a Jesus follower or not, I've never met anybody who set out in life with the goal of just being like everybody else, just going with the flow, just going along with the crowd, falling in line. But in this passage, we learn that if you're a follower of Jesus, you just need to know the only way that that happens is when you start to change your thinking, not just the decisions that you make in life. Having better thoughts will put your life on a different path 
toward better outcomes. And for the past two weeks, we've been looking at some of these better thoughts. In fact, we've talked about two of them specifically. We talked about how the thought that God knows what's best for me better than I know what's best for me. That's a thought that will change the way you make decisions. And then last week, Ed taught us a thought we can have about the people that we encounter in our world, that everyone has immense value to God, and therefore they ought to have an an immense value to us, and we treat people that way. Those are two better thoughts that will change our decision-making. And today, I want to talk to you about a big overarching belief or an overarching principle, and it's about your money. Now, before you tune me out, uh, before you turn off this video, let me say one thing because I I know what you're thinking. (laughs) This belief or this principle about money has nothing to do with giving your money away. And I know that's what you were thinking, because as soon as you hear a preacher say the word money, you start automatically thinking, well, he's going to tell us to just give all of our money away, or at least give him some. And that's that's not at all what this is about. Because you're thinking, well, me giving money away means I have less money. But here's the thing. This principle I'm going to teach you today, this way of believing, this way of thinking, won't actually lead you to less money. In fact, it's the opposite. If you embrace this principle, I believe you'll wind up with more. Because the people that I know who hold on to this belief, regardless of how much money they make, they're the people who have the least amount of stress when it comes to money. These are people who argue less with their spouse about money. These are people who wind up being more content in what they have in life. They're not the kind of people who often live paycheck to paycheck and all this stress and they're deep in debt. And it's all from this belief that they hold and live by that has to do with money. Because this is true about you and me and everybody. Every decision you have ever made financially comes from a belief that you have about finances or about money or about your possessions. Now, the interesting thing about that is if I were to come to you and ask you, hey, what are your deeply held beliefs about money? Most of us couldn't tell each other. I mean, you couldn't tell me what your deeply held beliefs are about money. Now, you could show me your financial decisions, right? You could show me your financial outcomes. You could pull out a a checkbook or a bank statement or a credit card bill, and you could show me the decisions that you've made, and you could show me even the outcomes of the decisions that you've made when it comes to your money. But if I asked you, hey, tell me what you believe about money, most of you would look back at me and say, "Uh, I believe I should have some more. (laughs) Or you would say, I believe my wife spends too much. That's what I believe, you know, or something like that. See, it's, it's easy for us to point to, and it's easy for us to know what our financial decisions are, and it's easy to find out what our financial outcomes are. But it's a whole other thing to discover what the deeply held beliefs are about money that I hold that wind up informing all the decisions that I've made throughout my life. But all of us have beliefs about money. And and I don't know where you picked yours up. We all get them from different places. Maybe you picked them up from the way your parents did it or or just the way you've seen your friends do that or just the culture in general that's around you. And, And all of your current financial outcomes, I mean, all of them, your investments, your debt, the stuff that you have, the stuff that you've spent, all these outcomes that, let's be honest, you're probably not completely satisfied with, we have to admit, they all came from a set of beliefs that we all hold about our stuff. And what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about a big one. But this big belief, I think, has the power to change 
all of your financial decisions and, as a result, change all your financial outcomes. But I don't want to just tell you about it. I want to illustrate it to you, and I want to do that uh, through looking at a story from the older part of the Bible in the Old Testament. Now, this story that I want to tell you, it comes from the scene, a scene in the life of a man named David. Now, if you've done any kind of reading in your Bible, you might have heard of David. But most, of, most people know David as the little kid who killed the giant, you know, David and Goliath. Well, this is the same David, but this time David's all grown up. David grows up and he becomes the king of the nation of Israel. Now, here's, if you're not familiar with the nation of Israel, here's what you need to know about them. Uh, the nation of Israel was this nation that God had come to, and he started with a, one person, a family, and said, I'm going to build up this nation, and here's what I want to do through this nation. God says, I want to slowly, throughout history, I want to reveal to the entire world exactly who I am and what I'm like. Now, we know, standing on this side of history, that the ultimate final reveal of who God was and what he was like came in the person of Jesus Christ. But for the entire old part of the Bible, the Old Testament, the history of the nation of Israel, they only saw glimpses of God's character. And a lot of times they misinterpreted it. They didn't get it right. Most of the time they had this limited, distorted view of exactly who God was. But the whole time, God says, I'm pointing you towards something. We're headed towards somewhere. And the, that somewhere was, was Jesus. But here we are in this time in their history, and Israel just believed something about God. Now, when I tell you what Israel believed about God, it's going to sound funny to our ears, and it's going to sound even a little bit silly. You might even laugh at it, but, it, but it's just what they believed. The nation of Israel believed that God lived in a box. And I know that sounds weird, but they had this thing known as the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you remember the classic movie back in, in the 80s, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the Ark, the box that they were all going after. And, you know, when they took the lid off of it, it melted everybody's face, and it was scary and the whole deal. But great movie. But this, this is what happened in history. There was this Ark, this box that they carried around with them, and they believed that God's presence dwelled inside this box. And as they traveled around, this was before Israel had borders and they had land and a nation, they would set this Ark up inside of a tent that they called the Tabernacle. And people would go inside of this tent in the presence of this ark, this box, and they would worship God because, again, they believed this is where God just lived. This is where he dwelled. And because God is leading his people somewhere to a greater understanding of who he was, God allowed them to believe that for a time. In other words, he sort of put up with their limited understanding. It's kind of like what you do with your kids. You know, many times when our kids are young, we, we allow them to believe things that, that, that they can understand and grasp, knowing that later when they can understand more, we'll reveal a little bit more to them. This is exactly what's going on throughout history. So here God is, and he's living in a tent, so to speak. And so David comes along, and along with this king that was before him, and he establishes Israel in a place. Their nation, they've got their own place. They've got a, he's got a palace that he's living in. And everything's kind of established. And so David's sitting in his palace one day, and he kind of looks out the window, and he starts thinking to himself, this isn't right, you know? I mean, it's not right that here I am sitting here in this great palace, living in a great building, and God's out there living in a tent. And it's like God's in the backyard camping, you know? And he's like, this ain't right. We've got to do something about this. Besides, all the other nations around us and all the other gods that they have, they've got a temple, they've got a building for their god, our God should have one too. And so he says, let's make a temple or a building where God can, can live, okay? 
Besides, we got the one true God. Why would we do that for him? Now, again, we know that God doesn't live in a box, and God doesn't live in a tent, and God doesn't even live in a temple. And Jesus would come along later, and he would straighten all of that up. But for now, God allowed David and the nation of Israel to just operate on that belief. And so he continued to reveal himself to this nation. So David starts by saying, I'm going to raise some money, and I'm going to get all these supplies together, and I'm going to build this elaborate temple to God. But right in the middle of all this, God comes to David, and he gives him some news. And God tells David, he says, look, David, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to allow you to build my temple. And the reason is because you've got blood on your hands, David. You're a warrior king. You've conquered nations. You've killed people. And I don't want someone like that building my temple. Which, by the way, just as a side note, is another way that God was revealing his true nature to his people. And that's a whole other topic. But the great thing is, when God tells David all this, he says, look, I'm not going to let you build the temple. Your son, Solomon, when he comes up to the throne, I'm going to let him do it. David doesn't get offended. He just accepts what God tells him. And he continues moving forward. And so he, David spends the rest of his life, and he prepares for this temple. He raises money, and he gets supplies together so that his son can come along one day and build the temple. And it's right at this point in the story where David reveals a principle that he believes about money and possessions. This is in your, your Bible in a book called First Chronicles chapter 29. And David is speaking to the people, and here's what he said. Using every resource at my command, I've gathered as much as I could for building the temple of my God. Now there's enough gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, as well as great quantities of onyx, other precious stones, costly jewels, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. So basically David's saying, look, I've gathered up all the resources that I have available to me in this nation as a king. But he's not done yet. He goes further. And now, he says, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I'm giving all my private treasures of gold and silver to help in the, con in the construction. This is in addition to the building materials that I've already collected for his holy temple. So now David's dipping into his own bank account. He's cashing in his own 401k. He's giving of his own treasure. Then he says in verse 5, Now then, who will follow my example and give offerings to the Lord today? Then the family leaders, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the generals, the captains of the army, and the king's administrative officers all gave willingly. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, see, th this is all about giving money away. Actually, it's not. In fact, we're not to the part that I want to emphasize yet. We're going to keep reading because in this next section is where David real eloquently states his belief, this better thought about money. Verse 9, <clears throat> the people rejoiced over the offerings. For they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord, and King David was filled with joy. Then David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord. This is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. Here's what David is saying. He's saying, look, all this wealth, all this power that I have, it's not mine. God, it's all yours. God, I don't rule this nation. You rule this nation. I don't own any of this stuff. You own it all. 
And not only that, God, you're the one who decided who gets it all. You decided who would have it and who wouldn't. And look at what David says next, verse 13. Oh, our God, we thank you. We praise your, holy, your glorious name. And who am I? He says, who am I? Who are my people that we can give anything to you? Because everything we have has come from you. And we give you only what you first gave us. David says, God, you could have given all this wealth and all this privilege to anybody you chose to give it to. But for some reason, you decided to bless us with it. And now, in addition to that, you're using us as an instrument to pass on this stuff, this, this great thing to this future generation so that they can know you and they can know how great you are and how generous you are, God. What an honor it is to be able to do this. What a privilege this is. And right there in the midst of that, that statement, that's the belief that informs and changes every financial decision that you'll ever make in your life. And when I tell you this, it's going to sound so obvious and so simple. It's one of those truths that you just want to gloss right over and just read past. But don't do that because I'm telling you, this belief changes everything in your financial world. And it's this better thought. Everything belongs to God. God owns it all. And whatever you and I have, whatever we don't have, it was given to us. By God. He distributed it all to us. And we all know God doesn't distribute to everyone equally. But no matter how much God has blessed you with, in the end, it all belongs to Him. And the truth is, God's just allowing you and me to manage His stuff for a certain amount of time. And again, before you start going there and you start freaking out and thinking about, Okay, this is the point where he tells us we ought to just give all our money away. That's not what this is. In fact, notice, that's not what David did. David didn't give everything away. I mean, David's still living in a palace. He's doing okay. God doesn't want you to give everything you have away. You know what that's called? It's called being irresponsible. I mean, <laughs> think about it this way. If you wanted to give all of your stuff away... The problem is, we'd all have to take care of you, so don't do that, you know? I mean, if you gave everything away and you didn't have anything left, I'd have to take care of you, and trust me, I don't want you living at my house. I got two kids, I'm trying to make them financially stable and independent so I can get them out of my house. I do not need you there, too. I mean, giving everything away is just irresponsible, and that's not what God's saying. But again, I'm just saying, every financial decision you make, when you live with this thought that I'm not an owner here, I'm just a manager, God owns everything, I'm just managing it for him, that changes everything you do when it comes to your finances. It changes every decision you'll ever make. And here's the deal. We all already live this way. We all kind of already understand this, that we don't truly own anything. And I know you're thinking, how do we all know this already? I'll just prove it to you. How many of you grew up and you had your own room at your, at your house? You just had your own room. You know, you had your bed and your room and your closet and your stuff. I remember I had my own room growing up. I had my posters on the wall, you know, the stuff that I was into. I had my bed and my clothes and my stuff. You ever, you ever put one of those uh, 
signs on the outside of your door to your room. It says, you know, keep out Jason's room or whatever. And this was your place. When your parents got mad at you, you know, where'd they send you? To your room, you know. And, and you just had your space. You, you'd go into your room and you'd play your music and you'd throw your clothes all over the place because, again, it was just your room, right? Question. If that was your room, how come your parents could always walk into your room and mess with your stuff? And when your parents thought you weren't doing a very good job of taking care of your room, how were they able to make you clean up your room? I mean, if it's your bed, if it's your room, how come every time grandma came to stay with you, you got kicked out of your room and your bed? I'll tell you how. It wasn't your room. I know they called it your room, and I know you had a sign on the door, and I know you had your stuff in there, but it wasn't your room. And you're saying, well, oh, okay, well, but I'm adult now, and now it's different, right? Really? See, I don't know about you, but every year, Coweta County reminds me that it's not my land. And the way they do that is because every year I have to pay the county for the privilege of living on their land. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, but it's my property. Okay, fine. Try not paying your property taxes one day and see how long it remains your land. I mean, come on. <laughs> Let's face it. We, we don't really own anything because here's the truth. If you have something that someone can come and take from you if they want to, you don't really own it. And we all know this is true. Living in our society, if you behave a certain way or if you choose to not behave a certain way, there are people who can come into your life and take away everything you own if you don't behave according to certain laws and certain rules. And I'm just making the point that in the end, we all get this, that we don't really own anything. But again, as soon as I say, but God owns it all, we all get nervous. We all kind of go, oh, I'm freaking out because... I'm afraid what he's going to ask me to do, you know. But there's good news attached to this idea. And here's the good news. I'll give you several pieces of good news. Here's one. Do you realize that if you fully embraced the thought that God owns everything you have, if you really lived by that principle, did you know that you'll stop feeling guilty for what you have? You ever been in a situation where you saw someone that had less and you just... You just felt guilty about that? If you really and truly believe that God owns it all and God's the one who decided who gets what, then he's the one who gave me what I have and, and he gave you what you have. And so just because you don't have as much doesn't mean I have to feel guilty about it. I don't need to worry about it. Because some people in this life, God sees fit to manage a little. Other people, God sees fit to manage more. See, when you become a manager of God's stuff, you don't feel guilty about the money you get to manage. But you do feel one thing. You don't feel guilty. You feel responsible. That's different. See, money managers walk around every single day with this thought in their mind and on their heart. Wow, what a privilege this is. God saw fit to entrust me with his stuff. And right now, I might just have a little of his stuff. But right now, I'm going to be responsible with what I have. Because later on, God might decide to give me and bless me a little bit more. And when he does, I'm going to be responsible for that too. See, the more you lean into this thought that it all belongs to God, you'll feel more privileged. 
and you'll feel more responsible towards your money. And here's some more good news. The more responsible you feel for your money, the more money you'll have. Because again, it's not mine, it's his. I feel responsible for it. And what happens is you wind up having more. So, so here's the question. Would you like to have more money? And you're laughing, right? Because that's the stupidest question you ever heard. <laughs> I feel stupid asking it. But if you want to have more money, then become more responsible with what you already have. That's the answer, isn't it? And see, the only way you can become responsible with the money that you have is you have to start by realizing this isn't mine. It belongs to him, and I've been blessed with it. A few months ago, my wife and I, we uh, sat down and met with a financial planner, you know, somebody who kind of looks at your assets and what you've got saved, and they tell you what you can do going forward to do better and get prepared for the future and retirement and the whole nine yards. And I remember going into his office, and we sat down, and before he ever looked at any of the papers we had brought, any of the, the financial statements, he didn't even look at any of it. Before he saw any of what I had or didn't have, he asked me one question. He said, so tell me what your goals are. What do you want out of all this? Now, just imagine for a second that I walked into a financial planner's office, and I gave them control of my money, and the first thing he said to me was, oh, wow, thank you. My wife sure could use a new car. What do you think is going to happen then? Well, I'd be walking out of his office with my money. <laughs> because, see, when you're managing someone else's money, the only thing you care about is, what does the owner want me to do with it? And it doesn't matter how much it is. It's, what do you want me to do with what you've blessed me with? And if you're a money manager, you don't ever go home feeling guilty because of what Someone did or didn't give you to manage. But you, again, you do feel responsible to the owner. So that's one benefit. I'll tell you another benefit of adopting this belief that God owns it all. It's a cure for greed. It really is. See, when you understand that God owns it all, and when you become more responsible for what he's given you, you'll want less. So you know that thing, we've talked about this, you know that thing in you, that desire in all of us that just kind of seems to want more and more and more and we seem to have to keep that under control, you know, that desire that just never kind of lets go. We always feel like, you know, if I could just get, make one more purchase, and if I could just save a little bit more, you know, then I'd, I'd finally be content. You know, it's like I'd have enough. If I could just save one more paycheck, I could have enough. Isn't it interesting that, I don't know if this is your experience, but I've never had anybody be able to tell me how much enough is. Enough usually is just a little bit more than I currently have. It's like we can never figure out how much is enough, you know. But when I'm a manager and I'm responsible for God's stuff, I just feel so blessed and privileged that he would entrust me that I experience something. I experience contentment. But the problem with contentment is spending won't get you there. Spending never brings contentment. Saving never brings contentment. Because again, we never know where enough is. Because contentment is not based on a decision that I make. You know where contentment comes from? Contentment comes from what I believe. When I believe that I am blessed by God, that's when I find contentment. And feeling blessed only comes when I know this is not mine in the first place. This is God's. Because think about it. If all the stuff that I had was mine, 
and I'm the one who did it, and I'm the one who, who, who took care of all this, and I'm so smart, and it's all me, 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 then you're not blessed. It's just all you. Nobody blessed me. I took care of all of this. But if it's all God's, then I have been blessed. And see, it turns greed upside down. So I want to wrap this up, and I want to share with you two things that people who embrace this better thought inevitably do in their lives. And let me just say, if you're currently not doing these things, it probably means that you haven't fully embraced this better thought yet, that God owns it all, that everything you have belongs to God. But let me say this too. Maybe you were saying, I'd like to embrace that. I'd like to believe that. How do I go about doing that? Well, I would say that if you started doing these two things that I'm going to share with you, you'll be, beginning, you'll be at the beginning stages of leaning into this belief. You know, you can practice before you actually start letting it sink in. This will help you whether or not you believe it yet. So let me just give you these two things. These are the two things that will lead you to that place if you're not there yet, but it's what people do who believe it. Number one, you'll ask God what he wants you to do with his money. See, people who are embracing or this, this better thought, they constantly are thinking about it. They're constantly praying this simple prayer. God, how do you want me to spend? God, how do you want me to save? God, how and when should I be generous with your stuff that you've blessed me with? And again, I know a lot of people are scared of praying this prayer, asking God what to do with the money because they, they're afraid. Oh, God's just going to take it all away. Trust me. If God wanted to take away your stuff, he'd already done that by now. I think he's fully capable. <laughs> and, and here's the other way to think about it. If God's the one who gave it to you, why would he give it to you just to take it all back? No, he wants you to manage it. Why? Because he blessed you because he loves you and he wants to partner with you in this life to accomplish his purposes in this world. And so God's blessed you to be a partner with him. He's got stuff and he wants you to accomplish it and all he's asking is you to join him in accomplishing his stuff, to cooperate with him and what he's trying to do in the world. Now, I know some of you are already doing this and you totally understand this and that's great, but let me say, if you're not, I just challenge you to wake up every day and just say this prayer. God, how do you want me to spend today? How do you want me to save? What, God, everything I have, it's from you. Thank you for blessing me with it. So now, now that I understand that it's all you, it's all yours, what would you like me to do? And then make every purchase, every investment, every financial decision, and just pray that prayer. God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? Here's a second thing that you'll do. When you embrace this truth that God owns it all, You'll keep track of where it's all going. Uh, for, for example, imagine a year from now, I go into the office of the financial planner, and I say to him, okay, it's been a year. What happened to my money? Where did it go? How much came in? And all that kind of thing. And the financial planner looks back at me, and he says, well, I don't really know. I didn't really keep track of it. What do you think is going to happen then? Well, I'd fire him. Why? Because managers always keep track of their owner's money. They just do. They know every penny coming in. They know all the pennies going out. And for many of you, I know you're already doing this, but there are others of you who are just not doing it. And I'm telling you, you need to do it. So my challenge is for the next seven days, just track it. Just watch. Just see where it goes. You don't even have to change anything. Just keep doing what you're doing, but just watch and track it and, and keep track of where it's all going. Most banks are offering this for free right now. You can do it online. I, I think we've mentioned this before. There's a free app. In fact, I put it up on the screen, mint.com. You go there, and, and you can download an app that 
you can plug all your stuff into, and it'll keep track of it for you. You can do it the old-fashioned way. Get yourself a spreadsheet or those old check ledgers that most people don't use anymore. It really doesn't matter. The point is that you just take all the mystery out of your money. Because, see, money's the one place where you shouldn't have any mystery. Because money's simple, right? Money is just dollars and cents. It's trackable. It's tangible. But where we get goofed up is a lot of people wind up arguing about money. And when we argue about money, we say things to each other like, well, it just seems to me that you're spending this much. Or it just feels like you're not paying attention. And here's the thing. When it comes to money, there should never be any it seems to me. <laughs> because money's trackable. You can, you can see it. You know exactly where it's going. So take all the mystery out of it. And, and, and find out where it's going. Because, again, it's not yours to begin with. And you're responsible to know where it's going. So just watch and see. Maybe that'll lead you to make changes. And I'm telling you, some of the most wealthy, financially stable, content people I know are people who started with this belief. They understood and they just embraced it. I don't own this. It's all from God. God's blessed me and I get to manage his stuff while I'm here. And it changes everything. And I'm telling you, if you embrace this thought too, it'll change your financial decisions. And as a result... Not only will it change your decisions, it'll change your financial outcomes for the better. Now listen, I know for some of you hearing this, this thought that God owns it all, it's real hard to believe, and I understand that. In fact, for some of you, it may sound a little bit extreme, maybe even offensive. And again, I, I get it. But I just need you to know, as followers of Jesus, we really truly believe this. And I want to tell you why. I think one of the writers of the Bible said it best. He wrote these words. He said, Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? See, what he's saying there is, when you understand the price that God was willing to pay to prove his love for you, to purchase a relationship with you, then everything else in this world that God gives you, it just, it seems so small. It seems so insignificant. Think about it. God didn't think the life of his own son was too much to give for me. So why would he hold back in giving me everything else that he chooses to give me in this life? See, and that's the belief right there. That understanding of God's love and his generosity towards me that belief is what leads me to say, Heavenly Father, of course you own it all. Look what you've done for me. And now everything that I have, everything that I am, even my own life comes from you. And so because of what you've done for me, God, I want to treat everything in my life in light of that truth, in light of that reality. Now, in just a moment at our campuses, we're going to be taking communion together. In fact, if, if you're going to be helping us today with communion, would you go ahead and, and move to your places? And if you're, a, if you're new to our church, let me just tell you what's about to happen. Communion is something that, well, Jesus invited all of his followers to participate in, to observe. And he said, this is the way I want you to remember the love that God shown, has shown for you in, in the person of Jesus, in his life and in his death, when he gave his life for us all. And so what Jesus did was he set aside these symbols bread and juice for us to eat and to drink and to remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus, which was the price that God paid for all of us 
when Jesus died on the cross. So here's what you're going to notice. Today, you're going to see around the room, people are stationed all around the room, and they're ready to serve us communion, the bread and the juice, these symbols. And in the moment, I'm going to invite you to move to one of the stations nearest you, and I want you to eat the bread and drink the juice, and as you do, remember Jesus. Thank God for his love for you and the price that was paid for your life. But as you do this today, our servers are going to be reminding us of a very powerful truth. You and me, we are not our own. Our lives have been bought at a price. And that price was the very Son of God, His body, His blood, given for all of us because of the great love of God. And I want to invite you, as you eat and drink and remember communion today, I want you to let that truth just sink into your heart and sink into really down deep into who you are and let it remind you, God truly does own it all. He owns me because of the price that he paid for me. And that reminds me that God's for me. He's not against me. God's not angry with me. He loves me. Look at what he's done for me. And I just want to say, everybody here today, you're invited to participate in this time of communion. But again, if you find this thought or you find this whole communion thing just to be a little bit too weird or a little bit un too uncomfortable for you, you do not have to feel uh, obligated to participate. You can just stay right where you are, seated, and just take it all in. That's fine with us. But if you want to, and if you want to take a risk maybe for the first time and do this, go ahead and move to the station that's nearest you, and let's all remember Jesus, and let's remember this better thought together. Let's do that right now.